got into an accident and caught and come to school but when he finally came back his hair had turned from black into bright white he said that it was from when the cousin smashed so Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week we're talking to Brad Roberts, lead singer and mastermind of the Crash Test Dummies. I think everybody remembers their story. Canadian band from outside of Toronto struck big in the early 90s with this song right here, Mm-mm-mm-mm, Who Could Ever Forget It, off of their second album, God Shuffled His Feet. That was pretty much their only big hit, though. They've always been a really quirky band. In fact, depending on your how you feel, you may love this song, you may not like this song. Who knows? Brad has a really distinctive, unique voice. The band are not, you know, an all-out rock band. They have some quirk to them. They're very unique. But over the years, they've pretty much done, or I should say probably Brad has done, pretty much whatever he's wanted to do. An album based on country music, an album with hip-hop, Beats, an, a pop rock album, a, an album with children's toys. He just does whatever he wants to do. And thankfully, they found their audience over all these years, and those people kind of go along with him wherever they want to go. They, they think Brad's vision is really unique, and it is. So anyway, they have a brand new single out from the last couple of months. It's called Sacred Alphabet. And because of the single, I don't think there's a new album coming, or at least not imminently. But with the new single, there is activity. There's talks of another tour and uh, maybe more coming down the pike. Whenever Brad kind of gets the itch, he'll put out a new song. Kind of like Dan Wilson does. We had Dan Wilson on a few months ago and he talked similarly about, he writes a song, he records it, he feels good about it, and he puts it out, just like that. Doesn't have to be a whole new album. So anyway, we talk about all of this, you know, um, what it's like being the kind of unique, creative person that he is. The sound of his voice, the style of the songs, the way the band is structured, being Canadian, all of these things that just kind of make you who you are. And sometimes in a rock world that's a little homogenized, that isn't always good. But in this case, it is. So anyway, hope you enjoy this conversation with Brad. He called me from his home in New York City. I want to kick it off with the new single because, and I think you probably know this, anyone who pays attention to Crash Test Dummies never quite knows what they're going to get because every new album is a reflection, or it feels anyway, a reflection of whatever is tickling Brad's fancy. Maybe it's hip-hop, maybe it's children's instruments, maybe it's folk, maybe it's country. We never know. But something is going to come, and it's going to be different. It's going to be interesting, and it's going to be all Brad, whatever's going on in his mind. And then here comes Sacred Alphabet. In the beginning 
was not the word, not yet. There was no sacred alphabet, no subject, object, verb, or tense. Sound had not been enslaved to sense. I guess what's exciting you right now is just minimalistic piano strings. I counted exactly six drum beats. The drummer has like the easiest job of all. He just has to hit three, three times twice and he's done. Alan sounds great. Tell me about this. Well, it's kind of a long story, but we're, we're, uh, all about long stories today, so I'll tell it to you. Go um, for it. We got when time. When the pandemic began, I decided that I wanted to study classical piano. And I know this is kind of a ridiculous thing to do in some one way because I'm 58 or 59 years old. And well, at the time I was 57 or when, whatever I was during the pandemic. I right. It's a blur pandemic. for all of us. Yes. Um, so I, I pursued, uh, that, and then I got curious about the music and the theory behind it, the music that I was playing, because I was just learning how to play it. I wasn't learning it, how it was constructed and upon what principles does it work. Like I couldn't have written, written it myself. Um, so I got a composition teacher and he, he showed me how to write what's called counterpoint. And counterpoint is um, a, a method of writing melodies that was developed 400 years ago for uh, sacred vocal music. Okay. <laughs> and it sounds idea, like that. And the idea is, well, thank you. I take that yes. as a big compliment. It is a big compliment. Um, so I took the principles of counterpoint and wrote a piano part. This is the first time in my life that I've ever written the piano part. Usually I would just give a chart with the names of chords on it to Ellen, and she would make up a part based on what I had, the song that I had provided. Uh -huh. um, but in this case, I actually um, sat down and wrote out the piano part in a way that I never could have done before having studied counterpoint. Um, and as a result, there's a very classical influence on the piece mm -hmm. um, it, i'd call it a piece as <laughs> though <So laughs> it weren't just a song and in fact it's that's kind song. of a highfalutin word isn't it yeah, yeah it is. i know what you mean <laughs> uh, but it's uh it's in the tradition of the uh european art song it is and it uh it doesn't really have a verse or a chorus per se it has different sections that blend together Mm -hmm. It's it's almost what's called through composed, which means different sections following other sections and never repeating the same material. That makes sense. Usually in music, the same material is repeated. Like in pop songs, you mm -hmm. get verses and choruses are repeated all the time, right? Yeah. So that that's the distinct the distinction there. Anyways. Okay. And, um, and the. As for the lyrics, you know, though that was they were a project in in and of themselves. 
Okay. A couple of questions I have sparked by what you just said. Number one, were you not already a piano player? I mean, like the little tinkling on, mm -mm, that's not you, that's someone else? No, that's Ellen. Is it? Yeah. I've never it known is. exactly how the responsibility is delegated. Well, Ellen plays keyboards and sings backups, and I sing lead vocals and play guitars. Well, I knew that, that, but I didn't know if I assumed you were kind of the multi-instrumentalist. So that's really interesting. So this is your first, this is your coming out party, I guess, is like a lead piano player on a Crash Test Dummy song. Yes. And in fact, I don't even play the piano. I just wrote the part. I got an extremely oh. good piano player to come along and read oh. the part and play okay. it for me because I'm not good enough to execute my own writing. I'm in a curious position because I've studied enough music and played enough piano that I can play the piano and I can write piano parts, but I can, I can write parts that I can't play. <laughs> got it. Okay. Now so I'm this, understanding. This okay. was rendered, actually rendered by uh, a piano player named Mick Rossi, who works with Paul Simon and Philip. Yeah. Brown. Okay. And okay. That makes sense. Movie. I'm imagining you taking these piano lessons or whatever and thinking, boy, this is opening up a whole new area of creativity for me. I got to get this down. And so this new piano, Sacred Alphabet is the, you know, the introduction of you as a primary pianist or whatever. And I didn't realize that you hadn't ever done a at least a little bit of that before. What's to become of this song? I mean, is this the Trojan horse for a new album or a, I know you guys are planning, I think, a new tour. What's what's happening here? Well, the main reason that I recorded a song, and just one song, was because we're continuing to tour now. We began touring on the strength of the fact that we had a 25th anniversary with The Ghosts That Haunt Me, or some such thing. It was an uh -huh. anniversary tour. That was the premise. And, it, you know, pure nostalgia factors playing into the production. Sure. But we played all our our biggest songs from our biggest records being primarily our first two albums. Mm -hmm. um, now, in order to stay relevant touring, I felt it was necessary to write some more material, at least one song. Mm -hmm. So that so we're doing something fresh and new and not just a bunch of oldies. Yeah. And um, I'm currently working on a companion piece to Sacred Alphabet. Um, but I, I don't know whether or not this will grow into an entire record. If I'm lucky, it will. Mm -hmm. But um, I'm not as ambitious as all that. I'm just kind of writing. I think I'll probably just continue writing songs and releasing them as I go. Mm -hmm. That seems to be kind of the new way. I, I talked with Dan Wilson from Semisonic recently, who's also a, just a incredible songwriter for other people and he does that a lot he'll just record something that he likes and put it out it doesn't have to be tied to a album or a big release he just wants it out there for anyone who cares and that with with the way that people don't buy albums as much anymore that's probably a good way to go well Immediate yeah gratification and people tend to listen to music on streaming platforms now. And when we released this, you know, in the old days, we would have released to radio and hoped for airplay. Nowadays, we simply 
release it to all the streaming platforms, mm -hmm. which isn't impossible to do for anybody. You know, you can join up with TuneCore if you want to. And, uh, you know, just for example, I don't mean to endorse TuneCore, although I do use them. Mm -hmm. But um, it's not that hard to get your your music on for any yeah. platform that's out there. Yeah. So, you know, Sacred Alphabet is on Spotify and Apple Music and iTunes and all whatever. All else. of it. Yeah. One click of a button and it's worldwide all of a yes. sudden. Yeah. And I noticed that on day two of the release, we already had 10,000 listens on Spotify. So <laughs> Isn't that, that fun? Was yeah. And that fun? people started when we were touring when the song was finally released you can hear i'm in new york because there's sirens going in the background i can't i wondered what that was okay <laughs> um what was i talking about again you were talking about when you released it and then the next day ten thousand hits or ten thousand oh, streams yes and and we started to get people calling out for the song in our live shows Ooh. We, We've been playing the song live, and it's been going over like gangbusters even before it was released. Wow! People were giving it a standing ovation. Um, it just seems to really resonate with people. So that's I, I great. We're pleased. So you've had—I mean, I touched on this earlier, Brad. You've had a incredibly individualistic and idiosyncratic career. As an outsider, it feels like Brad Roberts does whatever the hell he wants to do. And he doesn't he doesn't care who comes along. He doesn't care whether they're it's a big hit. He just has an itch to scratch and he's gonna scratch it no matter what. And I wonder if I am I on to something or do you is it not quite that rebellious, you know? Uh well, you know, I I think you hit the nail right on the head. <laughs> Although, and you, because you're right. I mean, what am I doing right now? My my main influence is the the musical style of 400 years ago. Like that's <laughs> not very hip. <laughs> Me here living in the 17th century. Yeah. Um, so yes, I do follow my heart. I follow my own path, and. I think that what I do is interesting enough that other people will find it interesting too. I'm that audacious. Yeah. Yes. I, I, I don't necessarily think of it as rebellious um, because for me, it's a fairly disciplined activity, you know, like I'm, I'm not uh, rebelliousness. Rebelliousness just doesn't quite coincide with. Okay. Feel about the material. But I understand what you mean by rebelliousness in, in the sense that I you're right that I'm not looking to what's going on right now for cues mm -hmm. as to how to go about doing what I'm doing. That's it. Um, for instance, I mean, I, I almost kind of want to go through some of this history step by step. After God Shuffled His Feet becomes this multi-platinum winner, you come back a couple of years later with A Worm's Life almost as I was, I, you're too polite. So it's not the, the exact word isn't defiant, but that's what it makes me think of is mm. like, you're just defiantly saying, I know you guys all came to discover us through this quirky little song of ours, but we're, we're different. And I'm not going to give, I'm not going to spoon feed you what you just got 
you know, a big dose of, I'm going to give you something else. I'm into power pop now. I'm into electric guitars and power chords, and I'm going to make you listen to it. is what sort of what I imagine happening. Yeah, and I guess the polite version is that um, I like to experiment. Uh-huh. And um, I'm a guitar player, and it was not much of a stretch for me to go down that road. Okay. And um, a lot of other people were going down that road at that time. You know, True. that was... Uh, and I thought I had my own unique take on that. Yeah. And I think that record is a unique take on, on, on what was going on. But unfortunately, every album you put out is a unique take on whatever it is that you're into. <laughs> well, thank you. There's no question. <laughs> There's also no question that that record didn't sell very well. It would. Um, I mean, it probably sold a million copies, but that just doesn't mean much when you just came off five million copies. Mm-hmm. And believe it or not, you know. Mm-hmm um and we never did we never did achieve success at that kind of level again how does Uh, that i'm always fascinated by the transitions in people's career and yours is a prime example of this where sort of out of nowhere you reach the top of the mountain and not quite as quickly but gradually come back down the other side of the mountain how does that play on your emotions your spirit your your uh compulsion to make music what kind of music you want to make what does that feel like when you wake up that morning and you realize people aren't buying worms life i guess i'm not going to be i'm not going to stay at the top of that mountain for a while well you know to, to start with i never expected to climb the mountain i always that makes sense I, I I was continually shocked by our success. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's no question that it is difficult to face. And it was very depressing going on tour for A Worm's Life and playing to half-filled uh, um, rooms. Yeah. I, I did not enjoy it. Yeah. Um, our fourth tour was quite a bit more fun uh for give yourself a hand Keep 
the fun in the fun house. You did, baby, you did. Who put your dad in the half house? You did, baby. You did, baby. Which was not, which was more successful than A Worm's Life, but certainly nothing like God Shovel the Speed. Sure. Um, did fairly well in Canada. Mm-hmm. People in on things wasn't the hit I'd hoped it was going to be. Yeah, but um, but in any case, I, I ended up getting off the record label because I was tired of the constant interference I was getting from A and R, and I started to make records on my own. And then Napster happened, and my accountant called me and said, "Listen, man, you got to stop making records. Or you're going to go broke." <laughs> and, um, yeah. So I had to face basically having my identity stripped from me because I had always identified myself as a songwriter and I, that's what I, you know, lived and breathed. Mm -hmm. And suddenly that was no longer available to me. Mm. And that was very difficult because when you play yourself worth with your creative output, you're in a very dodgy situation. Perfectly, perfectly said. I completely agree. Let me ask you this too, Brad. With your unique voice, which I'm sure you've heard a billion times, was the intention always for you to be a front man and sing your own songs with that one-of-a-kind voice of yours? Or was did you think at one point or to have other people maybe say to you, Brad, your voice is too weird. You're going to have to write songs for Amanda Marshall or other Canadian artists, Ron Sexsmith or some Canadian artists. You want to you want to know who said that to me? Who? Brad Roberts. <laughs> oh. When I first started writing songs, uh-huh. I really had absolutely no intention of singing them because I thought my voice was too low yeah. to be viable. Yeah. Remember too that we were coming out of the 1980s with hair metal and screamers. Yes. Yep. And to sing down in my range, I mean the only singer I could even think of at the time was Johnny Cash. Yeah. Uh, oh, good. Yes. That makes and, sense. And I, I in fact, grew up on Johnny Cash because my grandfather used to play the Folsom Prison Blues record in his mm-hmm. basement all the time when we'd go over there for dinner on Sunday. Mm. Um, so, I, But I didn't think that my voice was viable, and I tried getting other people to sing my songs for me, and I just couldn't get anyone to sing them with the kind of emphasis and and just the feeling that I wanted to get across. And so I took over singing the songs as a default position that I wasn't particularly happy with. Mm. And I was very surprised when people even took my voice seriously. Like when I, when I first started sending a demo tape out of Superman's song and some other songs that were on that first record, Tarzan wasn't a ladies man He'd just come along and scoop him up under his arm like that Quick as a cat in the jungle But Clark Kent, now there was a real gent He would not be caught sitting around in no 
I got an enormously positive response and I was extremely shocked. <laughs> that makes sense. In a way, um, not to take anything away from you, but God bless that Ellen Reed came along because her ethereal angelic voice almost takes the edge off a little bit. You know what yeah. I'm saying? It adds this dimension of beauty that wouldn't have been there if it was just all Brad all the time. No, Ellen is my not so secret weapon. She's, she absolutely is. She's really the most talented backup singer I've ever come across in my life. And I've yeah. worked with people. And she she really gets my voice and she can sing with me. Yeah. Right on the money. And that's a really difficult thing to do. You might think that the lead singer has the harder job being in the front. But in fact, singing along to somebody else takes a great deal of discipline because you have to blend with them. You, yeah. You can't stand out. Yeah. And um, she knows how to do that, like in spades. Yes. She's perfect for the, for what you do. I, um, Jerry Harrison. Oh, go ahead. What was that? She's, and she's just a great foil to my deep voice, as you pointed Absolutely out. it. That's it. So Jerry Harrison was on here actually three years ago, I believe. And we talked about his love for that album, For God Shuffled His Feet. How did a little band like yours even get Jerry to agree to produce it? Well, you know, to be honest with you, um, Jerry Harrison hadn't produced any big acts at that point in his That's life. That's a good point. That's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. Um, he had a big success with that band called uh, Wire that did a live album, I think. Hmm. Live. They, live is the name of the band. Yes. Yeah, they were called Live. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's right. Um, but between them yeah. and us, that, that was kind of, you know, we, we actually, I will say this with, in all humility, we kind of helped break him. Hmm. because our record ended up doing so well. Yeah. Um, the reason I hired him was because I just thought that the Talking Heads were an amazing band and that anybody who could play the keyboard parts that Jerry Harrison had come up with mm -hmm. was going to be just fine in my books. And I wanted to write a record that was keyboard heavy. Mm. You know, that's not, I'm a guitar player, and that record has a, guitars, both acoustic and electric, all over it. But it's also very heavily heavily layered with yes. synthesizers and various keyboard sounds. And yeah. um, you know, Jerry, being a keyboard player, had all kinds of instruments. And I I recall going through literally thousands of sounds and taking notes on all of them. Um, all of the ones that struck me as usable, I boiled them down to a hundred, and then thirty, and then I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, the first album is great too, but the, by the time God comes along, it, there's, there's a full bodiedness. There's sort of a, a, a thickness, an extra layer of sound or depth to the sound that I feel like Jerry brings to that album. What, by the time Worm's Life came around, has he, had he just become so successful that it was too expensive to hire Jerry Harrison to come back? No, it wasn't that. We just uh, felt that we were in a position to produce our own record because we'd now made two records mm -hmm. and we had learned a great deal. Mm -hmm. And um, we, w we wanted to have the uh, 
total freedom to pursue our own ideas. Cool. Okay. I produced it with my drummer and my bass player. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, you've talked about a million times in your life. I just have a couple of questions that I don't know the answers to. Number one, was that always, is that a fluke hit? Or is that one of those things where like the record label is savvy enough to know we've got this quirky little band with this quirky little song that we think is going to be huge. Was there muscle put behind that or did it succeed almost in spite of itself? That song had a very interesting history. I'll tell you a little bit about it. When it, yeah. when first came out, um, in our own country, in Canada, we had an enormous success with our first record, The Ghosts That Haunt Me. It went like five times platinum or some crazy thing. And we got a Juno Award for Band of the Year, and it was an enormous success. And when we put out our second record, the Canadian record industry literally turned on us. And um, in our own hometown, we had... Uh, um, the Winnipeg Free Press decided to pretend to pr print an incredibly negative review of our album, in which this guy said he liked the ghost that haunt me, but that this had I had we had turned commercial huh. and betrayed our roots. And um, then much music didn't want to play our video, and radio didn't want to play the single, and mm -hmm, went up and down the charts very quickly, and was basically flushed down the toilet. And we were to be a forgotten band at that point. And it was only because the song started picking up radio play in Atlanta, Georgia, and sales oh, wow. followed that, that Arista Records in the United States said, hey, we think this song can be a hit. And they plugged us into the machine. And we rose up through the ranks to number one on number two on the Billboard charts. Clive Davis, the president, was pissed off that we never got to number one. <laughs> that sounds very Clive. <laughs> yeah, two was fine for me. Uh -huh, <laughs> <can> uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, that song. And then the Canadian music industry said, "Oh, we're sorry." We'd really like to play the shit out of your record now that you're so successful in America. Can you? release another song so we released another song and made a video for swimming in your ocean played at radio um, in Canada and nowhere else in the world. So while the rest of the world was playing, mm, Canada was playing Swimming in Your Ocean because they had already, the music industry had decided that we weren't going anywhere with that first song. 
Wow. Gosh. Quite a tale, isn't it? Yes. And I'm curious, did you ever find that, did America ever catch up? Did they ever embrace or try to embrace any singles released after? I'm trying to think what they even were. I mean, I remember what you were just talking about, but I'm thinking like, what would have come off Worm's Life or or anything else? um, Afternoons and Coffee Spoons was the second single that we put out. heavily in Canada yeah so none of them were played as heavily as in America mm-hmm. okay yeah, but, but you know when we do concerts there are a few songs that everybody seems to know besides uh-huh. our Superman song God shovel his feet afternoons and coffee spoons swimming in your ocean yeah um, those are sort of universal. That makes sense. That makes sense. I touched earlier that we try to sensitively hit on some of the business side of things. You still hear mm, all the time. As I would imagine, I don't know, but is it has it provided a nice living? Do you still get decent mailbox money for that song? Um, for a long time, I didn't until the streaming world got caught up legally mm. and there started to be agreements between record labels and streaming platforms to pay the artists involved. Frankly, the major record labels kind of sidestepped the musicians and did, you know, cozy little deals and the musicians got a little shafted as they always do. Yep. The the short answer to your question is yes, I do get money from streaming. Um, and because we have millions of plays on Spotify, I, I get, you know, I mean, I'm not rich by any means. I don't own a car. I don't own a second home. I live in an, I rent an apartment in New York city. Uh I don't have kids. I try to keep my expenses to a minimum, but I'm able to do it. And um, with the addition of touring, I can pay the bills. It gets placed too, doesn't it? I mean, it shows up sometimes in a movie or a TV show or something like yes, that. Yes, absolutely. It seems like yeah. every every few years I get some big placement or other yeah. somewhere in the world. That's and what I thought. Chunk of bill. So, well, then you've kind of answered my question because one of the things I was curious about when I was touching on that individualistic nature of yours, I wondered if the financial freedom provided by a hit like mm-hmm is what sort of allows you to do that. It says, you know what, I'm my bills are going to be paid thanks to this quirky song that was a number two hit in 93. So I can make the country record. I can make the album with children's instruments because I'm going to be okay. Now that 
I don't mean to minimize it, but I am wondering if that ever plays in. If you didn't have that hit and were hungrier or more like, I, I got to have something, do you think you would approach your music differently? I don't know, because I did have the hit, and I have gone ahead and done what I wanted. Yeah. You know, to tell you the honest truth, when we made our first record, we were just doing exactly what we wanted to do, and it didn't yeah. really have a hell of a lot to do with what was going on in the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. And Superman's song was a hit in spite of that. True. Mm-mm-mm. Second record, same thing. I was not acting on the influence of what was going on around me. Yes. What was going on around me was Nirvana and stuff. Yes. And we wrote a much different kind of record. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've all, even with the hits, I've always just followed my heart. Yeah. I don't think that that would be any different with. I don't think I'd be, no, I would definitely wouldn't be listening to the radio and trying to figure out how to write yeah. a song that sounded like somebody else so that I could be successful. Good point. And what I think is kind of the magic of an artist like you, Brad, is that at, because you've been doing this for 30 something years now, your, your audience are exactly the people that you would want them to be at this point. They're not all there because they remember one song from 30 years ago and they're dying to hear that one song. Your artistic vision is so specific that the people who come to the shows are the ones who want to hear you do the hip hop beat songs and the country songs and stuff because they're on the Brad Roberts bandwagon and have been for a long time. That's what specificity and creativity I think provides. Well, and, and once again, you've hit the nail on the head. Our crowds are just that. Yeah. And many of them do know all the other much more obscure music that we put yes. out. Yes, yeah. And, and it's very gratifying to see, you know, we get three streams of people at our shows. We get people who heard us when they were kids. <laughs> we get their kids. <laughs> And then we get their kids, <laughs> grandkids. Yes. It's three generations at this point. Yes, I get it. Okay, I like to ask people I have on here, I like to hear the stories about some of my favorite deeper cuts from from uh, some of the people I talk to. One of my favorite deep cuts of uh, Crash Test Dummies is Aching to Sneeze. I've been aching to sneeze, begging please, pretty please, but I can't get the thing to come out. I've been down on my knees, I've been pissing on trees, but the evil thing just won't come out. Come on out, my pretty baby. Just curious, <laughs> because the song sounds off, starts out as if Brad 
needs to sneeze and can't and thinks, oh, I'll write a song about this. And then it gets so twisted and weird. And I'm just wondering what sparked that song. Um, you know, when I was writing in those days, I, um, I'm just pulling them up now so I can see what they are. The lyrics. That's funny. I did. I have them up here too. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It does kind of get twisted, doesn't it? It does. I'm not really a lyric person. And so even though I've been listening to crash test dummies for years, I don't always pay close attention to what's being said. It's more about a vibe. But in getting ready to talk to you, I thought I really should. I've always loved aching to sneeze. What's really going on there? So I put it under the microscope and it gets weird. Well, you know, I wrote the lyrics to this record just after I finished doing um, a songwriting workshop for a week. Oh. A castle in the south of France that was owned by Miles Copeland, who is... Um, Stuart Copeland, Police's Drummer's yes. Marriage of Sting. Yeah. Um, I had been paired up with two other, you know, major songwriters, people like Carol King and so forth, uh-huh. and each day, and we composed a song at, you know, on a daily basis. And I've heard of these. The day. In fact, and I have a weird I, question to ask. This, do you... I think I've talked to other people on the show who were there at this at this thing. Eric Bazillion from the Hooters, I believe, told me about this. And Alana Miles, I think, told me about this. Maybe I'm mistaking it with another one. Dar Williams. Anyway, go ahead. Keep going. These are interesting. I've heard of these things before. Yeah. Um, it was it was a fascinating experience. I mean, I could talk about that whole experience at length, but that was kind of Writing under pressure like that and writing very quickly like that was an, a new thing for me. And I came back writing lyrics very quickly. And Aching to Sneeze came out as I was typing it. It just flowed. <laughs> and I had no idea where I was going with it. Uh-huh. And it started off as the urge to sneeze and it very quickly got to pissing on trees yes <laughs> and uh you know it, it just it, it seemed to have a life of its own and i wrote a lot of lyrics on this record that just seemed to come alive under my fingers in a way that they never had before it was very liberating there is no one quite like you brad i'm sure you've heard <laughs> that a million times is it i mean the hip-hop beats are all over this album was that in was that, a, a, going back to this theme, I keep going, was that what you were into at the time? Was that you a know, label thing? Like, you need to be more current, put some beats on here? Well, surprisingly enough, uh, no. I, okay. I, um, I met a guy named Greg Wells, who has since become a major, major producer in L.A. Um, I met Greg Wells at that songwriting workshop that I just mentioned. And he was so talented, and I really wanted to work with him. And he co-wrote that record with me that's the first record i ever co-wrote with anybody mm -hmm. i wrote all the, the words but we co-wrote the music and um that the fact that it went in that direction had a lot to do with his influence on me mm. 
But I welcomed that influence. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't fight it at all. It was like, oh, you want to do that? Mm -hmm. Well, I can do that too. Let's play around with my falsetto. Mm -hmm. You know, something I'd never done. Mm -hmm. uh, let's play around with gang style vocals where you get, you know, five people around one mic and just more or less shout the lyrics. Yeah. Let's try, let's, let's just go down that road and see where it takes us. And, um, I was delighted with the way it turned out. It was yeah. so much fun to tour for. I dressed, I dressed, wore a, a red sparkly dress and a cowboy hat and cowboy boots. And I had a bra, which I stripped down to at one point. It was an insane show. Oh, that's wild. I love that. Okay. I think my favorite Crash Test Dummies album is uh, Puts, Put, Puss and Boots, Poots and Newts. Really? Yeah. And I think I feel that way because it feels like a fairly straightforward pop album. You know, the if there was... If all the other albums are Brad's and Brad's feeling something, that one feels like Brad feels like making a pop album. Maybe I'm wrong. No, you're kind of right. I was working with Stuart Cameron co-writing those songs, and Stuart has a very pop disposition. Hmm. And again, I just allowed the influence to take place. I found after Worm's Life that I was getting tired of myself. I was getting uh, tired of my own ideas. And so I actively sought out other influences. And the pop influence on that record has a lot to do with Stuart Cameron. Okay. He plays the guitar. And the way, the way he hears um, chord changes and, yeah. and drum beats. Okay. That makes sense. Um, I really like Flying Feeling. feeling a second okay what i am curious about is when you were at the top of the mountain there for a while as strange as that may have seemed what what what's your favorite memory from that period is it that uh you know for a while there you i don't know the you had roadies that took care of everything or yes. tour managers you know what I mean? Or there were better groupies, or I got to open for so-and-so, or whatever. Tell me some stories from that moment in your life. Well, we opened for Elvis Costello, and that was when he reassembled the attractions, that tour. And that was a tour that, you know, we used to go and play the show, and then we'd just sit around and watch Elvis. Uh, it was It was incredible. 
And, you know, to be honest with you, I don't always pay any attention to the opening act or the act that we're opening for. Um, but those shows were undeniable. Yeah. They're just fantastic. So that was a big moment for me. Another big moment would have been playing on Saturday Night Live. Yeah. You know, most of the time, bands go up through the ranks and they start started back then with, you know, Conan O'Brien or something, and then you got up to Letterman, and then you got up to Saturday Night Live. But we went, we were playing on Saturday Night, like Saturday Night Live, right out of the box, practically. Um, the guy that was in the band Saturday Night Live, G. E. Smith, he ran yeah. the band. Mm-hmm. He he was a big advocate of ours, and Ooh. once a year, Saturday Night Live put on one band that they just more or less took a gamble on. And our single had just started to break when they asked us to be on. So they really were taking kind of a chance and, um, and it only helped our cause. That's amazing. And soon we were playing David Letterman, which was another highlight. Yeah. Cause I used to love watching David Letterman. I think he yeah. was, he was hilarious. I mean, He's the best. The undisputed king of that. Yeah, I miss him. Was there like an after party after SNL that you went to and you, I don't remember who was there at the time. Like There was. I went, I went to the after hours party and I chatted for a long time with Julia Sweeney. Uh-huh. Used to play Pat. Uh-huh. She's great. Um, and uh, it got written up in the newspaper that we were a cozy item. <laughs> <laughs> I found hilarious because we were a little cozy for a brief period there. <laughs> really? Did you date Julia Sweeney? Very, very briefly. Wow. I don't think I've ever even mentioned that before in my life to anyone. Wow. That is great trivia. It was very brief. I love it. I love she, it. She was in the middle of a very busy career, and so was I. Yes, she was. You, you both were. That was a peak period kind of for both of you guys. Um, did you ever get a chance to meet like a musical hero, maybe besides Elvis Costello? I don't know who your heroes are. but um, I got to meet Andy Partridge of XTC. Oh, that's I right. I meant to ask you about that. XTC is such a clear influence for you. Thank you. I take that as a compliment. Huge I, compliment. I, I love that band. I love yes. Almost every record they put out. Yeah. And they're all so different. You know, speaking of putting out records that are each different, in my case, that's true. And that's equally true in the case of XTC. Very good point. Yeah. Um, They're always putting something. And yet it always sounds like XTC. Yep. Yep. Something there. Yeah. Dave Gregory was on here a few years ago, and he was such a nice man. And um, Isn't he? What's that? He's lovely, isn't he? He is. He's so nice. And you can tell that, um, in fact, I was, uh, John Lecky, the producer, was just on here recently, and we were talking about it, too, because he worked with them. And mm-hmm. then, um, Dave is kind of Switzerland for the two, because Colin's got his songs he wants, he feels strongly about, and Andy's got his, and Dave is just kind of in the middle trying to placate everybody and keep things happy, but those personalities are so tense sometimes that it doesn't work. And yet they make such beautiful music together when they can all, you know, stand each other and make it happen. Yes. I feel very fortunate to be in a position where I genuinely like my bandmates. 
Yeah, so you, you I don't bet. have an adversarial relationship with any of them. I bet. Yeah, that's a that's a, an Amer a, an amazing position to be in. Well, I should let you go, Brad. Thank you. I I just as long as I've known who the dummies are, I just can't help but always thinking, what is with that guy? What is Brad Roberts all about? He is so on his own path, and the rest of us are following along. And I want to know what makes that guy tick. I want to know what he's all about. So thank you for chatting with me. I've just been curious for years. Well, that's a huge compliment in and of itself. And thank you for doing a great interview. Well, thank you. Thank you, Brad. There you have it, Brad Roberts. Nice guy, right? I wouldn't, I mean, you could tell they're all decent human beings, but I don't know that you ever really get a feel for Brad and where he's coming from. And now we know, and he's just a really nice, decent guy. I love that conversation. Um, I want to close it out with a song called Songbird. This is off the band's last album called Ooh La La, but it came out in like 2010. So there's not a full album that's been out anytime you know, recently. But uh, if you heard some things you like, go check it out. They're a fun band that do all kinds of things. <laughs> it's probably the easiest way to say it. And Brad and Ellen especially, both of them together sound so good. Now, next week's guest, well, first and foremost, I should say, our guest producer this week is Ryan Murphy. Thank you, Ryan, for stepping up and putting uh, out this episode with me. And as you know, every week this month, we're going to be having a new guest producer. So next week's guest on the podcast is, boy, to describe this person. I mean, they are a musician, but that's not really what they're primarily known for. Um, he's also a director. He is a DJ. He's a uh, party starter. He's uh, I don't know. I, it's he's a lynch. He's a focal point in British music of the last 45 years. But it's not so much because he's a musician. It's almost more because he's an influencer. I don't know if any of that even made sense. But that's who's coming up next week. Okay. Again, huge thanks to Ryan. Um, folks, you can like our page on Facebook. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. There is no real bonus content coming out this month because we didn't want to, with Yan taking the month off, unless there's a panel or something, which we might have. Uh, we're just going to lay low and just go with the Tuesday episodes this month, okay? Anyway, thanks, folks. We love you. <laughs>